Welcome to Friars and Film. We are three Catholic priests from the Order of Preachers, and we're here, as always, to talk about the movies. Well, hello, and welcome back to our podcast. Today, we are making a big leap from being inside a Carthusian monastery. We're going over across the Mediterranean over to Casablanca. Yeah, Casablanca, 1942, directed by a director I've never heard of, Michael Curtis. I don't know if he did other stuff as well as Casablanca. This is, of course, a wartime movie. It's the great Humphrey Bogart. Ingrid Bergman. I don't really need to say much more for this introduction because everybody everybody knows about Casablanca. What I will what I will note is just that so I remember we were talking about another hugely well-known sort of landmark of American cinema with um which is Citizen Kane. I remember we were saying how okay, Citizen Kane is it's the greatest movie of all time that no one seems to care about. Now Casablanca meanwhile Maybe we'd say it's one of the greatest movies, maybe, but it's certainly a movie that everyone seems to care about. Everyone seems to love Casablanca and uh, love to, to listen to the music that, that's a part of it, to, to watch the actors that are a part of it. It's just sort of set in our consciousness, like, like few other movies are, I would, I would argue, in, in our American cinema world. So maybe what we can just start off with to ask the question, just why is this so popular? What has been so enduring about Casablanca? And I'm just going to jump at it with my, my own personal theory. A lot of possibilities here for what makes it so popular. Um, I think maybe the biggest thing is just the star power of Bergman and Bogart. It's just kind of the perfect star vehicle for them. Um, you see both of them sort of in their these roles that, that are perfect for them. Um, that's probably the biggest thing. But I, I just also want to say that it's very possible that without two things, without the song, the song um, that, that is sung halfway through. Um, you, what, must what, remember you must remember this. this right. As, as time goes by. Just a kiss, a without sigh, that song, just a I'm not sure that this movie has quite the same enduring power. And then number two, I'm not, if 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 that that final scene when they're on the tarmac in the rain or the, at least the clouds or whatever in the nighttime, if they're not wearing those hats that they're all wearing, <laughs> I don't know if this movie endures. So I'm just gonna gonna put that out there. That, that why is it so popular? Well, a lot of stuff, but maybe two of the biggest things are just the 1940s hat wear and the, that amazing song. And as I never thought this about the hat, but you could apply the lyric, you know. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. That that includes the and not only the hat but just the whole style, the sets, yeah, the, the gin the joint. Thing. Now I want to say, Father Allen, I can guess why you liked this movie. I know you liked it. Everybody likes it. It's iconic. <laughs> you said in passing, I was surprised by. I think the surprise ending is part of the satisfaction, right? Yeah, I had seen it before, but I didn't really remember the plot and the intricacies of it. So how it all worked out, there were great lines there at the end. So to compliment the hats, uh, you had the wonderful line about the, the hill of beans. 
the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. <laughs> I mean, some of these lines are so good <laughs> and they're so American. So that, you know, it's this kind of heroic cynicism with the folksy hill of beans phrase. They just, they just nailed a certain American thing. He goes, you're going to get on that plane. You told me to think, you told me to do the thinking for the both of us. I've been doing a lot of it, you know? So you're asking about why it was such a success. I mean, at least for the first 20 or 30 minutes, the thing that really hit me, and this is probably true in a certain way for Citizen Kane, Rick is extremely American, a huge American type. And so mm-hmm. Kane is this kind of hugely ambitious guy who, with, with this hubris, you know, Rick is, is different, but he's is extremely American nonetheless. So he's, he's detached. Okay, so he doesn't really have a place in the world, even though he is... He's on the border of Europe and the colonies. He's still not of that world. He's in, but not of the world. And he's not even really in or from his, his own home. He's been sort of kicked out of New York for some reason. And I thought it was really fascinating when the, the German officer asks him where he, or what his ethnicity is. He says, well, I'm from New York, if that tells you anything. Because New York and America in general is not an ethnicity. And so Americans have this situation in the world, which is not an ethnic one. He's sort of the man from nowhere, but he does it in such a cool way. The nightclub owner and the way he does it is such a cool kind of American aspiration. Uh, The nightclub seems to be a kind of embassy. It's this American embassy to the world where all of the world can come and be in this kind of neutral, cool setting. Kind of the coolest um, nightclub ever. Yeah, I mean, like, it's In real right life there. or in fiction, doesn't matter. I mean, the whole world is there, and, and yet the owner is just indifferent to the fact. You know, he, he likes all the stuff. This is, this is his own choice. I mean, he set up the club, presumably, and he runs it, but, but he's just kind of over that fact. You know, he has this American coolness and indif- indifference to it. So he doesn't care, in a sense, about a lot of stuff, but he's still successful and pragmatic and effective and respected. And I think this is the kind of pose that Americans like to take, to be hugely effective and and powerful despite not really caring. And and then the final element of of Rick, though, and it really starts to come come through uh, in the rest of the movie, is that the cynicism conceals a big heart. So there's something about his detachment, right, that enables him to see through the fog of convention. And in the end, once he gets over his nihilism, he sees only good and evil. You know, he's not attached to societal conventions, and he just does what's right. And I think that's how Americans like to think of themselves, especially in the, in the middle of the 20th century, when we see this war going on in the continent and in the rest of the world. And this is a kind of American idea and legend. Not that it's untrue, it's just that it's a kind of story that, that Americans would like to enjoy. Tell and hear and about see. themselves. Yeah. yeah, see see portrayed in this way. It's American. Now, this, is before, this is before the end of World War II, though. But it's also somewhat of an East Coast thing, too, right? I mean, we've all, none of us are from the East Coast. We've lived there. There's also sort of that toughness, but I also have a lot of feelings underneath I, I have a couple bullet points. Again, not so much big themes, but a couple of things come to mind. I was surprised to find out this movie was made in the middle of World War II, 1942, yeah. without the conclusion mm-hmm. of the war anywhere in sight, and before the American involvement. So, again, we jump to World War II and think of our role. This movie's made in 42, and the plot is set in 41. 
I was surprised by that. I, I wasn't surprised to hear that. I think it was something in the 1980s. The Screen Actors Guild, I had looked this up earlier, they declared this the best script ever written, just mm-hmm. in terms of dialogue. Uh, a few more bullet points. Da, 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 da. I love this film. Uh, when I was in high school, I was trying to get into movies, and I tried a lot of older movies. I think this is the only one in high school I really liked. There's something about it. Some of it's the plot twist at the end that he does the right thing. Some of it's that... I mean, there are great characters. Um, my second point, however, though, is I remember uh, watching it for the first time and thinking, okay, I, I like that he's tough and he's sort of this jaded American. I like that she's Ingrid Bergman. She's beautiful. And the moment she walks through the door, you pay attention to her. But I, I had felt... They were my first viewing of it. I had felt they were kind of an awkward couple. Like the plot goes that she's married to Victor Laszlo, who's suave, who's European, who's like very good. And here's Rick, but you know she she admires Victor. He opened her mind to things, but she realizes that her first in love experience is Rick, which is so derailing for her. I buy that plot, but there was always a little hesitation. When I was in high school watching this, thinking, ah, I don't know if I see these two together, you know. So I'm, I'm glad in the end she went off with Victor. I was like, yeah, she, whether you feel in love with Rick or not, Victor's a better guy. Whereas this time around, I, I can see that some, but there, there is, maybe I've, maybe I admire tougher guys now, but there is something kind of endearing about the tough guy who grows sensitive. I just think that's a human dynamic. Rick is this tough guy who, for the first time ever in life, it seems, gives his heart to somebody, and she for the first time. So I think, uh, I don't know why I bought that plot dynamic more this time than last. I'm just saying that I did. A few more quick points, too. I mean, I I, I think the dialogue is sharp. I think the setting, the scene, Casablanca is just... It's interesting, too. I mean, American viewers, if you're saying, oh, Americans, it's an expat community mixed with Europeans in North Africa, they say, ooh... In a nightclub, Ooh, you know, there's something like that's intriguing about just the whole setting from the beginning. Um, I also realized this time around that the theme, uh, as time goes by, is also put. It's orchestrated. It's actually throughout the whole movie. I didn't realize how much that song comes up throughout. But I, I, I just start and finish where I left off. I love this movie. I think it has all the classic elements of cinema. It has suspense. It has romance. It has dialogue. It has plot twists. It's kind of, I mean, to use another baseball analogy, I know you don't like this, but this, this, is, a, this is a strong two-seam fastball. There's nothing that's so difficult, but it's just so good. With a little movement at the Strike end, three. I'd actually say this is a Mariano Rivera Strikeout. pitch where it looks like a fastball. You know, it's thrown really hard in the ninth, but but it, but it tails off at the end. You say, "Oh my gosh, <laughs> didn't see that coming." Mar- this is a Mariano Rivera movie. If I ever saw one, <laughs> I like the uh, the comparison between uh, Bergman, or excuse me, um, Bogart, and then uh, the guy who plays Laszlo. You know, th- those two characters, Rick and Laszlo, and I think it's um, a good thing to think about just because it's. There's, they're, they're so different. They're, they're really foils for each other. He, Laszlo has none, none of none of Rick's heroic cynicism, as, as you called it, Father Allen. You know, he's he's more just kind of pure heroicism and uh, has this suave character to him. But the funny thing is, and this is just to look at it from a purely cinematic lens. I mean, 
<laughs> Bogart is so engaging and wonderful to watch as the viewer. Laszlo is just like colossally boring right. <laughs> to watch. I mean, there's nothing, nothing really interesting about about any scene that he's in, except that he's he's just there to offer this voice of heroic reason and virtue which is somewhat um, how she feels the viewer shares in her well that's her the conflict. thing well that's the thing and so, and so you know what, what, what you mentioned that about about her how she's bergman respects laszlo whereas uh you know it's, it's it may she may find it difficult to respect rick as the owner of this expatriate nightclub and yet she 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 she's in love with him and uh, and yeah so exactly our our experience as the viewer is perfectly um is is our um experience of bergman's uh her character. Anyway. I, I, I wanted to say, too, this just dawned on me as you're speaking, Father Luke. I think at a superficial viewing, people in 2020 could view this 1942 film, especially how it views her as a woman, almost, oh, she can't make up her mind. She's torn between two men. She tells him, you do the thinking. That can seem sort of like looking down on her. But I, I think actually the viewer shares her dilemma. It's actually a share in her dilemma between two men, which I which I think is actually... It's not looking down on you. We're actually looking at these two men with her in a way. Yeah, no, that's a great, great point. I was as much as as much as men may be tempted to look too much at her because she's beautiful. Actually, the movie looks with her. Sure, sure, sure. More so. And then also just to go back to Father Allen, you were just mentioning the the nightclub, you know, and what a big part of it, the whole movie that is. To me, the the nightclub is almost like another character. And it's a yeah. it's an it's just as entrancing a character, so to speak, as any any of the others. And uh, it really speaks to the life experience of someone like Rick or like so many people in the world. And, and in a sense, like like all of us at some t- at some stage or other in our own lives, maybe perhaps where life is challenging. Things are looking bleak. Uh, you, you're kind of stuck in a certain place. So what are you going to do? Well, you just got you got to go to a place where there are good times to be had on some superficial level, and everyone knows it's superficial. But everyone's just like, "Well, this is all we got for the time being, and so we're going to enjoy it, enjoy it as much as we can." It kind of reminds me of the experience uh, of of any of us when we're we're uh, we have a long layover in an airport. You know, it's like, okay, here we are. We're in an airport. We're just stuck here. There's nowhere to go. Um, you're not on the next plane that's going to take off anytime soon. Well, what are you going to do? Well, is there a place to get a beer? <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, I think I think the nightclub is, a, is an image of America mm. because America sometimes wants to be this neutral hub for the world where mm-hmm. people can come to check out of their traditional ethnic situations and just be human mm. for the moment and for the future. And where are they all trying to go from the nightclub? It's America. So there's a kind of continuity. Mm-hmm between those. So that's that's another reason why I think this film is so successful is it really flatters America, I think. I think that's it a great point. America's soul. I totally agree with that. Um, at the same time, I think the movie also critiques that a little bit and and sort of proposes that okay, there's something captivating about offering the world that sort of global nightclub um, way to approach life and some, just as there's something um, kind of charming about Rick's cynicism. Um, but at the same time, it ends by having the nightclub get closed and by having Rick decide that he can't continue to look at this whole seemingly just sort of um, across the ocean conflict from a distance. He has to he has to take a side and he um, 
he has to move past that indifference, which maybe, which perhaps a lot of Americans wanted to continue to um, stay stay in, to continue to be indifferent in the midst of World War II, but then dis- discover that they couldn't continue to do so. And so, too, soon enough would America herself, right, with entering the war. Yeah. Right. Well, I guess I think they just had, uh, or we 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 just had, right. We had just uh, entered the war, and therefore we're, this was a big question for all of us. Let me, do you have something? I, I have a question. No, go for it. So I wonder, we've been calling Rick's attitude one of cynicism, and uh, I think that's fair. But I also, I wonder if it's actually more one of heartbreak, whether this movie is, because he, he was an activist, it seems, you know, in, involved in many foreign wars for the lesser side. But it seems to me that uh, this is also a testimony to the power of heartbreak, that a single woman can walk into his life and then walk away, and all of a sudden, he's embittered. That happens for real people, you know. I think once she comes back, you see how he changes all the small, you know, cracks start to form in his in his hard facade. Um, he starts to, you know, she. they said, would you have a drink with us? He says, yes, I will. And, and the... Uh, the French governor is like, oh, okay, you know, Rick never does this, or he or he does reach out. You know, there's that Bulgarian couple, and the woman doesn't want to basically go to bed with the officer just to get a visa because she's faithful to her husband, so Rick actually helps him out at the gambling table. Like, you see him doing these acts of charity. You see him softening. You see him opening up. And that that's all just because, so A, I think it's it's the power of heartbreak, that that you can just kind of shell up, but it's also the power that an, another single person can have. I mean, this is why music is obsessed with writing about love and heartbreak. This is why movies are. There's, I don't know why in God's providential design He allowed one person to affect another person in such a, I don't know, such a way. But there, but it's a true aspect of human experience that this woman, you know, of all the gin joints and all the towns of the whole world, she walks into mine. That woman is more powerful than than world affairs than World War Two for him, and that's that's true about human beings. It's not just oh this these particular characters. So I, I think mm-hmm. it's also a testimony to, and maybe we'd say oh well that's just infatuation or a, or a fleeting experience of falling in love. Call it what we will, evaluate it as we will. It's going to remain a very powerful factor for human life until we all reach the kingdom of heaven to navigate that. And he mm-hmm. does navigate it nobly, is that he, he sends her off with her husband. But for a moment there, everybody's thinking, "Yep, this may just—they just may run off together because because it's it's it, the movie exhibits the power of of that one human can hold over another by way of affection." So both heartbreak and, and, and just walking in the room again and giving new hope, very powerful stuff. And it's not just Romeo and Juliet because they're 15 years old. It could be people in the middle of a war and they're 30. Absolutely. It could be people when they're 70. It's, it's a strong factor in life that I think this movie reckons with. Absolutely. Yeah, I think the, the flip side of that, Father Timothy, is that he is animated to do the, the right thing at the end by their reconciliation. Correct. So he's basically neutralized as as an agent in the world by the fact that this huge experience, their time in Paris, turns out to have been nothing. It turns out to have meant nothing, at least from his perspective. And when she goes to him that night and, and reveals to him the reason she left and expresses her, her love for him, that's when he, he gets strength to do the right thing. 
I think this is kind of the core, the most important kind of moral takeaway, which is this. We have the strength to do the right thing in life because someone loves us. So it's not because we love someone that we can do something. It's because we are loved and we, and we have the strength to do something. So a Christian, a religious person, is going to see that this is true also in real life with regard to God. The, the only reason that, I, that life is meaningful for me is because I am the recipient down to the very core of my being of love. I don't even exist without love suffusing me and surrounding me at every moment. So... So this is the source of my energy to do anything at all. I love the line that expresses this. He says, we'll always have Paris. Mm -hmm. That will always be there for him as the reason to do anything good. But also, we'll always have Paris is a sort of... um it's sort of seeing their relationship in perspective, not just this world-wrecking, world-altering love affair. It's just saying, you know, we, 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 were, we were together for a really brief time in Paris, and that's actually what it was. You were actually married. It's, it, it, was, it, it, it actually puts limits on the experience. I think it's proper. I think it's kind of the truth of the matter. I would say that, mm -hmm. not to be too abstract, truth and love go together. Yes, he's motivated because he's loved by her. He's motiv motivated. But he's also motivated by the truth. Is that That's actually an interesting thing I never really emphasized. Is When they were together, and even the years when they broke up, they didn't actually know about each other. They were they were purposefully ignorant. He said, "We're not going to talk about what what, would, what did she say? No questions, you know." Yeah, and that's explained because she's married to a resistance leader. She can't be t telling everybody this. But it's also true is that he's empowered by being loved, but also by the truth. He respects the reality of the marriage, and I love this line, this reasoning that. She may be happy that day and the next day that she stayed with Rick, but pretty soon she would come to regret it and realize that it wasn't the right thing to do. So, yeah, I, it's something about his realizing that he is loved and that the best moment of his life, as it were, was not a sham that basically strengthens him to believe in the world again, to believe in reality. And so that's why he can say, okay, well, all of these other things are actually real, that cynicism isn't the final truth about everything. So funny enough, too, that this dilemma of the presumed dead spouse reminded me of canon law class, because this comes up in canon law, Did you, you know, and especially in times of war where, you, you know, a soldier may disappear. And so it does, it does raise a real question about the marriage, and he makes the hard decision. He, he recognizes what other people might not have, namely that they're married and that this is best for her, and that's what she would want in the end, to respect the marriage. I love that, how yeah, he, needs to, he needs both truth and love to give him the power to overcome the, the stuckness. You know, he's just totally stuck there in Casablanca. Casablanca is like the little kind of environment picture of his own spiritual state. You know, he's stuck. Uh, but it's, it's through being penetrated by both the truth of his relationship with this woman as well as the realization of her love for him that lets him get unstuck. The, another way that I think that we can think of his arc, the arc of, of Rick's progression in, in the film is that um, 
you know, there's there's a, a word that keeps on coming up in his conversations with that French official. By the way, I love the French official. That, I mean, talk about talk about a great script. I mean, he he has yeah. so many great lines, um, and yeah, he, he's just 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 amazing. But uh, he, one word that he keeps on using is um, sentimentalist. He keeps on saying, "Oh, Rick, you're such. A, I know you're a, a sentimentalist at at heart." Um, so sentimentalism is sort of a, a common. Th- question in the movie um but of course another word that we've been using a lot is cynicism and so for most of the movie it seems like those are really only rick's only two options uh are you going to be a cynic or are you going to be a sentimentalist and at the end he's given that question okay are you going to be a sentimentalist and just run off with this woman or are you going to be a cynic a cynic and just reject the idea that she loves you or that anyone loves you and just continue to just only do what's best for you without connection to any other human being and but you discover that okay actually no that's that's a false dichotomy uh, the option is not just to be a sentimentalist or a cynic the the real option is to simply give have respect for the power and beauty of that relationship that he had with this with this woman respect for the the place that she was given to play in his life in his heart to have respect for that on the one hand but then to also keep his eye on the bigger on the bigger picture which is namely okay what is the state of the world what are the needs of the world and of the broader community in the midst of this and by being able to kind of have to do both and he's able to be neither a sentimentalist nor a cynic but really just someone who's rooted in the truth rooted in um in love right well any other any other closing thoughts before we wrap up here one thing that came to mind for me simple is that i i see a parallel here with the great gatsby written obviously like 20 years earlier but there's it's sort of a better version of the great gatsby in that there's mm-hmm. this man who's throwing parties he's sort of a cynic he's mysterious people don't know much about him but he turns out to just be haunted by a woman but how he handles that in this case is with truth he wants to know the truth that then motivates him towards love and there's there's real resolution gatsby's just a tragedy in that you're trying to just chase down the past rather than actually see the past for what it is Hmm. with its Hmm. limits it's just paris you know sure powerful human affection but but it's paris so i uh i feel like there there's a sort of a realism to the conclude not just a cool plot twist not just a mariana rivera indefinable fastball um there is there is sort of a realism that's not just admirable but it's kind of how humans should behave if they're if they're dealing with like let's get the truth let's look at the best option let's be strong enough to choose it even in the midst of chaotic situation. That's the second lesson is that I think that's a lesson of a, of a pandemic. Presently, I think it's a lesson of just all times is that whatever global situation is going on, it never actually erases ongoing human stories. Humans will continue to fight and fall in love and these things. Um, I, I, I love that about this film is that it's true to life in that way. There's the large world events and then our small lives playing out. Hmm. And I think that's especially dramatic because it's especially true. Yeah, the, there is a realism. But I think the last line struck a false note. It's a great line. Louis, the of a what does he say? Friendship. Something right. to the effect of, I think this, this is the beginning of a beautiful, beautiful friendship. friendship. Yeah. I mean, the, that French <laughs> official is a fairly corrupt individual. I mean, I don't, I don't think he's just going to become, you know, a friend to 
to to Rick, who seems to be fairly and decent. Rick does. Let's like remember, that. Rick Rick does shoot and kill the German officer in the end. So it's not just a lighthearted day, like ha ha. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean that's maybe defensible, but I mean the the French officer is coercing women. He's stealing money. He's collaborating. I mean, well, they're not saints. I mean, we weren't canonizing either. Man. Well, anyway, it just seems to be a bit of a stretch to say that just because the French is now outside the realm of the Germans that he's going to be a, a friend. Anyway, okay. Final thing is that Rig really does some Christological stuff at the end. So here it is. Uh, where where so is Christ? First, so first of all, he would have been killed. He was giving up his life. Not yeah, only right. not yeah. only helping these people get away, but he was actually laying down his life. And it, through events, it was saved there at the end. And then he also says to Ilsa at the end, where I'm going, you can't follow. And that's... Oh, oh that's right. I remember that. That's, that's verbatim right. Jesus, uh, John 13. <laughs> so, you know, maybe it's just that that statement is in the idiom. It's, it's just part of English speech. But uh, no, th- there really is a kind of Christological element there at the end yeah i remember hearing talk about false notes i mean uh actually i like that that the very last line of this is a beautiful beginning of a beautiful friendship maybe not like a a true truly beautiful friendship like in the mold of perfect aristotelian friendship but uh i can still imagine them getting along together okay as they journey to their next place but when i heard him speak that verbatim line from from the gospels i was like wait seriously script writers screenwriters you can't have humphrey bogart like actually sincerely speaking these words of christ and let me say this what is her last line to him you remember no i don't quiz question putting you on the spot her last line oh god bless you right in the letter in the letter she writes that and at the end she 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 almost whispers to him god bless you okay which is so good to see a little religion at all and absolutely because it is in people's lives it's just not able these days to be put in art because there's some strange taboo because well i don't know why i don't understand the world i just resist it all right so that's about it What, what are we proposing for our next movie let's discuss have you any have either of you seen the third man before no i haven't I don't I even know what good, you're though. talking about. It's a, it's just to continue with our with this. Uh, I mean, the concept monk is not really a noir movie, but I, I when I think of of Humphrey Bogart, I think of of noir, and uh, the Third Man is kind of like a another World War II drama, um, sort of actually post World War II, actually. Um, but yeah, no, a great noir film from the '40s. So, is it? Does it also have Humphrey Bogart? Humphrey Bogart is not there. Okay. This one has uh, it brings us back to the uh, Citizen Kane cast with Orson Welles and jo- Joseph Cotton. Sounds good to me. I can abide that. I'm not always in the mood to go back to World War II, but if we're on a roll, we're on a roll. All what, right. what could possibly be the the outro music for this you movie? Know, the only I, th- song. I think there's only one choice. <laughs> The only question is which cover to use for it. No, but I no, think no. I, I think I think it's never been tr- been done better than it was done in the movie itself. So you, you must, must remember, remember this. this. All right, everybody, that is it. A size, just a size. Until next time. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. And when two lovers woo 
They still say I love you On that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of date Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman need man And man must have his mate That no one can deny It's 